Next on Rugby Wrap-Up in a very important Community Corner segment, Derek Lipscomb, Dave Flemister, and Lawrence Blaver Jr. on the trials and tribulations of being a black man playing rugby and living in America. Rugby Wrap-Up brought to you in part by The Pig and Whistle, the world's best rugby pub, the Murphy Kennedy Group, founded with the idea that construction can be done better and lean and limber stretching your way to a healthier lifestyle hey everybody and welcome back to rugby wrap up matt mccarthy in midtown manhattan talking rugby once again and this time i have some very special guests uh friends of mine from a long time ago or more recently but uh three very interesting gentlemen and with what's going on in the world i thought it was um high time that i I did something and i don't know what this something is going to be other than offer a platform for three guys that i respect that i know have some things to say about what's going on so with that let me give you a brief introduction uh first up we have mr derek lipscomb educator and diversity, equity, and inclusion facilitator, founder of the work of the Work Racial Literacy LLC, an educational resource website focused on enhancing conversations surrounding race and racially traumatic events. Co-founder of Roots Rugby, an Afrocentric rugby team looking to create opportunities to play rugby at a higher level. On the pitch, he's played for Old Blue, Team USA, Rugby United New York, the Major League franchise, and of course, Roots. And he's a smarty pants Columbia guy. <laughs> Speaking of franchises, the legend of Niagara University Rugby, the Ghanaian-born, Bronx-raised, Buffalonian, over 20 years as a rugby player, coach, and administrator with runs with the Gotham uh, Knights as a head coach and a rugby player with New York Rugby Club and an assistant coach with New York Rugby Club. Mr. Junior Blaber, a.k.a. Lawrence Blaber Jr., a.k.a. Junois Blaber, when he is penning columns for Rugby Wrap-Up and or MeetTheMats.com. He is also a former director of business for African Communities Together, current small business director for Pan American Community Developed Initiative, and sports rain man. And last but not least, my longtime amigo, Mr. David Flemister, uh, we started playing for the New York Rugby Club in 1987 together. I got to see somebody faint on his altar uh, as I was in his wedding party. Mr. Flemister started his rugby career at Connecticut College, played for the New York Rugby Club, the coolest club in the United States, established in 1929, also the oldest. I own a college assistant coach currently. He's an advertising executive, and he's an all-around good guy. Well, really, we'd like to be talking about something a little bit more pleasant, but the it, let's get the let's get the... It's the elephant in the room or the 800-pound gorilla, whatever it is. Uh, the It is the, the stuff that's going on, protests. And I'm going to talk as little as possible for obvious reasons, but I want you guys to, to address some stuff. First and foremost, David, I've been around you the longest. I've known you the longest out of these guys. And I have watched you have to – going to situations that I, I know made you uncomfortable. I've been in situations where you, with you where I was uncomfortable because I knew you were uncomfortable. And I've seen you and, I, and I've seen Junior 
And I think, Derek, to, to a certain extent, I've seen you have to measure your words and the, the way you carry yourself and your actions. Am I, am I accurate to that, Dave? You are. Um, you know, it's a tough world to navigate, and it has, I will say, uh, over generations. Shamefully, you know, some of the same situations happen over and over again. Um, the only thing I will say, and I've had this conversation both in the work environment and, and others, you know, at, for the first time in over 30 years, I believe that, and I hate to overuse the word woke, but I think that more people um, that don't look like uh, your three guests are woke and are now more sensitive than they've ever been before and more accepting to the fact that things have to change than ever before. Before it was like, oh, it's a black thing or it's a multicultural thing, it's whatever, it's about us. For the first time in, in my life, and I'm sorry that so many horrific things had to happen to make this uh, come to life, um, there are people that are now um, you know, raising a hand that are you know, so much, so diverse than we've ever seen before. And I only, I've had this conversation when my work environment, I have hope now that there will be change in the future more so than I had, say, three decades ago. I agree. Um, you know, before I can even move forward, I think one of the things to address is being comfortable with the language being used to. Um, so being able to say the words race, being able to say the words racism, black, police brutality, things like that, and kind of normalize it so that it doesn't feel like, you know, I'm stepping into a new, you know, arena here, but rather like these are things that are all around us at all times. Um, and the more that we get a chance to kind of discuss them and name them, um, the more likely it is that we will have some onus in that in that conversation and bring more people into it. And so, you know, just as somebody that does this work, um, you know, as a job, it's just important to really kind of ground that conversation there so that, you know, if you are feeling uncomfortable you can lean into it a little bit more um, and kind of explore uh, what it is that that makes you uncomfortable when you say the word black or when you say the word racism um, and really be okay to, to kind of extrapolate it from there that's an excellent point because I'm a guy that you guys have been around and I'm a guy that's had more exposure if you will to stuff in the inner city than other people of that are like me, white guys, specifically middle-aged white guys. Uh, I coached the Harlem RBI for 11 years. I got a hardball baseball team called the Harlem Shaskies. Uh, so I got a little bit more exposure. But even now, I, you know, because this is a show, I find myself measuring my words. Like right. saying black, saying racism, call, calling what it is, right? Right. So, and, I, you know, this, that's a good exercise for somebody to say, okay, all right, I can say that. I can't, you know... I know what I can and cannot say, but right. now that I'm on camera, I felt like, yeah, you just pointed it out. I was kind of like uncomfortable. How to, how to dance. And I, and I do think that like, you know, before anybody like listening presses that pause button, you know, to really think about, you know, what it is that, that is about this conversation that kind of has you kind of fatigued even that like, Oh, here we go again, kind of deal, but rather just like, all right, this is a different take, or these are three, four individuals here that might be able to kind of add to my experience. And how can I use that as a learning piece and kind of grow a platform off of that? I don't want to step on junior, but one of the things, uh, Matt, to your but point, go right ahead. Cause I can, um, because I'm the oldest. Uh, I think you have physically stepped on me. games, <laughs> But we'll keep going. We'll keep it going. So, so Junior, I'll, 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 I'll 
maybe I'll set you up, maybe I won't, I don't know. But I wanted to build on, on Derek's point, which, you know, everyone has to acknowledge as we, you know, in our, our on-the-field lives and our um, work lives and our, you know, personal lives. It's like, we all have prejudices. It's okay, but how you act upon them um, is where it can make a difference. Because right. if you negatively act upon them and, you know, use them to, you know, hold people down or, uh, you know, judge people, that's where we have an issue. Um, you know, I hope that we all are open to realize that our prejudices can be, you know, uh, accept people for their differences that they are and not, but not judge or act upon them and keep them down. And that's, I think that's the key thing. And that's one of the things that, um, Matt, to your point earlier, um, had to deal with in rugby, you know, the, the word um, rugby and black uh, early in my career were almost an oxymoron. Um, mm-hmm. And judging the, fi- the fact that we have multiple generations here, uh, I feel like it's, it's um, become less so. And I bet you, if we look at each of our uh, the generations represented, the the number of people on the team on the league in the league has increased. Uh, well, I mean, a couple of things. Well, I remember one time I was with New York Rugby, and there was four four of us on the same team. Well, and that felt great because for mm-hmm. my whole career, I'd been the usually the only black guy. So there there is that. But as a whole and as a society, it's it's okay to not know and it's okay to almost have prejudices the problem a lot of people have is willing to grow beyond that willing to be uncomfortable this race relations in america is going to take what i like to say a lot of awkward moments hard questions and uncomfortable answers compete and once people get their head around that then they will um we'll go forever now when we talk about race relations, one of the things I like to point out to people, for instance, I was arguing in a rugby chat room with somebody, is the amount of thought I have to put into a simple exercise, like walking my dog at night, I don't think anybody else does. Like, I'm, I have to make sure I'm wearing a light uh, colored article of clothing, nothing too dark. I want to make sure my phone has 15% battery in case I have to videotape anything or light anything. I need to make sure I have my driver's license with me so that I prove that I'm at the house and I, and I choose a path that's not by a lot of houses so nobody thinks I'm casing the joint. And mm-hmm. this is all the things that a lot of times black people have to go through in America that we don't talk about because for a large part, hey, you see Jim at the office, you talk, how's your weekend? Great. Everybody knows everybody on a surface level. But that right. next level of everything I go through, we don't. We don't. And we don't have that conversation. And it's not easy, but I think that's the, that's what this situation has forced. And I think we can somewhat thank the fact that there is this pandemic going around. People can't go to work. You're stuck at home. So now you can't complain you're too busy to look right. at what's happening in your face. Well, I wanted to ask you a question. You were born in Ghana. Yeah. And you were raised in the Bronx. Yeah. And I remember you telling me that you had an interesting first exposure to racism. Yeah, the first time I remember was racing home with my friends. You know, you're just like last one home's a rotten egg. Start about a block into a cops pull us over. Why are you guys running? <laughs> last one home could be dead. 
these days. <laughs> exactly. It's just, and that, and that forever burns me because I was just like, how many kids in the suburbs just race each other home and never have to go through this whole process of why are you kids running? Every white person I knew up until college was an authority figure of some sort, a mm. teacher, uh, you know, even, even a bus driver, even a cop. And I didn't have a white friend until college. Now, I want to ask you guys about something that happens to me. What do you feel about the stress of being always the black ambassador? Hey, Dave. Oh. Yeah, it's always like, hey, Dave, why do black people like Beyonce? Hey, Derek, <laughs> what's the whole thing with the ribs thing? It's like, you, it's constantly you're this guy who has to explain black culture, whether you care to or not. Well, I've realized that, you know, part of my job, because I, I teach at um, a predominantly white school, um, and it's all boys, and I, I do it, I do it deliberately because I'm also um, in, elementary, in elementary school. So um, for a lot of those boys, I will be their first black male teacher. And so I think about, you know, my own experience there, and how, you know, I didn't have my first black teacher until not even male but just my first black one until I was in seventh grade and so how many different questions kind of show up um, prior to that and then you know these these boys are just inquisitive and even some of my colleagues and you know you just recognize that like there's a certain there's a certain piece of you that you always kind of keep professional even when you're like at home like if somebody were to call you up it's slipping right back into that space and you realize that it's a bit of code switching to some degree um but you know to the larger part it's really just more um more about being able to um represent not just you but like your people <laughs> quite well because you realize that like for a lot of these people, a lot of the kids included, you might be the only black person that they talk to this week um, or and this month. And that's because you speak, you teach in one of those fancy pants schools. Exactly, exactly. And so as a result, like, you know, I do, I've, I've Lawrence, I've put it on myself um, to become that ambassador. Um, and sometimes it, it is tiring and fatiguing, but the biggest part is that like, you know, to make sure that the, when they leave this place and they do interact, um, with people of color, whoever they may be, they already have schema about, you know, how to kind of navigate that space, or at least it's normalized to where it's not, you know, tokenism at that point. Oh, yeah. I, went to a, I went to a fancy pants school and um, went on to college where I was one of four black males to graduate. And, you know, sadly, you know, the school that, you know, small school, 1600 people, but understanding you have to be that ambassador. So it does add a little bit more pressure to make sure that you don't um, perpetuate any stereotypes. Right. Because, you know, even if you just want to be yourself, you're always guarded. Um, I can't yeah, imagine that pressure at all. I mean, it's not, I, a, it's, not, it's, it's not pressure because it's something you've had to deal with your entire life. Um, it's, it's a little bit odd. I grew up in New York City, very, very diverse, you know, um, city but it, it is it's it's something that makes you you know have to think extra that other people don't have to deal with and i i will say and this is something that i, I think will transcend uh generations how many times have we heard oh he's so articulate mm -hmm. you never matthew how many times have you had anyone reference uh, you oh, you're the, the whitest people? black guy i know Right, yes. I've heard people say that to you. Now you just, just like, insulted Junior and Derek. 
<laughs> I've heard that so many. I've heard that so many times. The expression "do chills." I can't really describe. You know, I, that's what I got every time I'd hear that expression. Yeah. Or that. But on the flip side, the guys think don't see. They don't think that that is a racist statement. Yeah. Right. They're starting to realize it now, but it you know. For, for years, and Derek, go ahead, because you're, you're, you're probably dealing with parents, teachers, and students. Yeah, and, and, I, and I was just about to say the reverse, because the reverse to them, to when I say them, I say white people that use that statement, the reverse to them, like, would actually signify togetherness. So, like, if you were to say to a white person, you're the blackest white guy I know, like, that makes a lot of people's day, largely because yeah, yeah. That's, that's be cool. right. right, and so, like, because they kind of see... I like that. <laughs> but because they kind of see it as, as, you know, I've been accepted into your space, right. you know, that's what they're, that's what a lot of times they're pining for. And so on the flip side, they're thinking like, you know, this is one way to disarm you. Cause you know, if you are, if you are a black, black guy, like that sounds dangerous. Whereas like, if you're a white black guy, all of a sudden, now it seems like I can have a conversation with you on an intellectual level, not understanding that like, you've already kind of put us on a social hierarchy yep. there. Um, that we now have to navigate all of a sudden. And so there's nothing to do with that statement other than call it what it is. It's a racist statement. Um, and so I don't think white people, when they say it, and even some black people too, because I get, I get it sometimes from my own race as well, um, about you know, me having to, to you know, quantify my blackness to some degree. So do you um, call people on it now? I mean, do you finally feel that you're able to do that now because of the shit that's going on? Well, I've always been able to do it largely because I have the, the, the vocabulary to do it. And so being able to call it out and not in a way that, you know, is going to increase tension, but rather just come into a space of like education or like, let's pause and actually think about why um, what you just said might upset the next person you say that. To. Well, wait a minute. Um, so just playing devil's advocate here, you're at a parent teacher meeting mm -hmm. and that comes up. You, you address it on the spot. Yes, I would just say like, I would, I would just as I said, like, let's pause for just a second, like coming to you, not as a teacher, but as a black person, um, what you just told me is actually very racist. And like, usually you'll get a lot of sorry's. It's super awkward as Lawrence pointed out, but like those awkward like conversations are actually super helpful just because I know the next time the that they are, are going to be pushed to that yep. space, they will immediately think like, Oh shoot, I shouldn't say that. And that in itself is a learning experience. All right, but guys, okay this, this is flying by, but we do have to take a quick commercial break. So okay. just stay with me because we're on a roll now. We, you know, we're starting <laughs> to loosen up a little bit. Just, we got to take a break. Hold on. If you're in New York City and want to watch some great rugby, have some great food, and some great times, go to the world's best rugby pub, The Pig & Whistle, on West 36th Street. back guys we had a, a brief conversation off camera because we're, we're feeling out what we want to talk about what we can talk about not that we can't talk about anything on this program i'm not afraid of reprisals guys just to just to put you at ease but it's more about your comfort zone one of the comments that come up a lot when when you're speaking to people of color and referring to them um particularly if, you know i'd say of the three of us 
oh, they're very articulate. And that is something that has happened, you know, a lot, uh, I'd say what we have on, on, on camera here are, are multiple generations that happened before. Um, you know, when I, when I first got into the, uh, in, into the league and started playing rugby, like people were surprised that, you know, I, you know, spoke articulately, but the fact that it was something that was described, you know, like that was an adjective, um, that would not be, um, ascribed to any other person, uh, that played on the rugby team was mm. kind of, uh, I'd say insulting, um, it's something that, that, that I've never heard any uh, person not of color uh, described as, as being articulate. I think it's largely because it comes with a certain weight, that adjective, because I can imagine there are some viewers and listeners at home that are thinking like, but that's such a positive adjective to be described by, not understanding that historically, like, you know, that, that adjective itself, particularly, you know, articulation itself, carries a lot of weight um you know even coming back from slavery just you know the uh, the surprise from from white people when they actually hear a black person discuss something that they deem um as intellectually uh weighted or intellectually not like, to be educated right and so you know when you get into that conversation and really pull apart the word articulation as it describes a person of color then you can see why a person of color actually would feel some kind of way when they hear it um and that's regardless of of who's saying it too because i do think that um at this point in time it it's just it's got connotation with it and so it's important to just kind of keep that in mind yeah. um through these conversations too what is the vibe up in Niagara Falls slash Buffalo for you uh, coming from the Bronx. Did you get, people, uh, I tell you, were you I treated like uranium. I, I were you treated like an alien? No, I mean, there is a black population in Buffalo and in Niagara Falls, but I mean, I drive and I deal with, I sell real estate now. And so, you know, you drive in certain parts and certain, and you see a lot of uh, Trump uh, 2020 stickers and everything else. And that's one thing that I, it's weird. Like, but just like saying, MAGA symbolizes you're okay with so many levels of things wrong with this country. So there is that. But I think one of the things Dave touched on in the break that I kind of want to get back to is when other Black people question your Blackness because of how you talk or how you sound. And, and I think that is part of the overall culture that's been forced upon. And I have a weird view because I've lived in being Af being Ghanaian and and also raised in the U.S. I have two different views on media and stuff like that. But there is this weird thing that has become ingrained in Americans as to what a black person is supposed to act like and sound like, and it is believed by both blacks and whites how you're supposed to be. So you end up being not fitting into both and. Black people are surprised. Black people feel offended. And it's just, and, and, and it's a hard thing to explain to, any, to anybody to feel not at home with either side. It's saddened because I look at it uh, to build on that, Junior, is like, you know, that means the esteem of folk is, you know, our expectations of ourselves. And I'm not talking about the three of us um, or even the four of us. I'll, I'll include you, Matthew. But um, our esteem uh, is so demeaned 
that we believe that um, what people's perception of us are should be less than. Um, we should not be able to be articulate, speak well, be educated. And that's, you know, when it comes from um, people that look like you, it's, it's actually more painful um, than when it comes from people that you expect it to come from. You know, it's interesting that you guys bring that up. I'm from urban white trash, New Jersey, Hudson County. I was born in Jersey City and raised in, H in Hudson County. And when I went to college, the University of Buffalo, that Mecca, where Junior is now residing, uh, I talked like this. You know, I talked like a moron. And the guys in my dorm taped me. And I'm like, okay, I'm here in college. I'm going to learn how to speak. Mm. Right? So I go home. And I'm just focusing on pronouncing words. Right? Basically, instead of call, what are you doing? I grew up by the GWB. And my mother would always smack me in the back of the head trying to get me to, to speak well or, or better. Mm. Uh, but when I got home, some of my guys that I grew up with were like, oh, college boy. Oh, college right. boy. I'm like, what are you, stupid? You know. <laughs> right. Uh, but, uh, you know, for me, that was, that was different. That was, it wasn't race. But when coaching Harlem RBI, I had certain rules with the kids. I had them from when they were 12 and I coached 11 years and then I took a year off and then went back. But my rules were A, you use proper English. B, you don't tell on your teammates. And C, you know the count any given time I ask you wherever you are, whether you're on the bench or not. And they were like, what's with the, you have to speak properly. I said, I don't care if you hit 360 in baseball, but I want you to be able to turn it on and turn it off when you go out into the world and try to get a job. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. And some of the kids were getting blowback from their friends on the bench when they would speak right or correctly. They retain that lesson, though, when I, when I talk to them as adults. I would push back there in, in the terms of, like, making sure that when they show up, they're always their authentic self, right? And so – and I – as somebody that's gone to Columbia and has to, to mold – himself in order to like make sure that I can be seen by the Ivy institution as somebody that is competent. Like, you know, you've got to kind of code switch to a, to a great degree, which does put a great deal of stress on the person itself. And so, you know, I, I do think that like, I, while I agree with you there, I do, I do want to make sure that like we we're in a space to where like, however you show up, I get it. And like, essentially we will be largely getting on the same page here, but I don't want you to feel like you've got to do a complete 180 in order for you to actually be here in this space. Now, does that mean that like you are going to be any kind of way when you're in here? Absolutely not. There's a certain level of professionalism you need to bring into the space, but we are going to foster that rather than be push it onto you so that you're not in, you're not essentially having to, to turn it on and turn it off, but rather like you can gradually make the shift and then eventually there won't be any reminders. You will just automatically be in the space, know that you're professional and then can immediately kind of approach it um, in that manner so that there doesn't have to be the, the, the whole like stress, stress flea, like traumatic type of transformation that has to happen, but rather it's going to be more organic. All right. So, you just I mean, were the man. ultimate diplomat and not telling me that I was just flat out wrong, which you don't have to do. <laughs> no, specifically, that's the whole point of this. That's one point I wanted to say to that. And the other point was we actually made it fun where guys were actually teammates were telling on each other that he just said eight. 
And I said, all right, well, you, we had an expression, hit the fence. There was a, hit, a fence about 100 yards away. They had to hit the fence. And they would try uh, to get each other to hit the fence. So the kid would tell on his teammate for saying ain't. And I said, you just told on your teammate. I said, there's no telling on your teammates. Go hit the fence. And they were like, but they made a game of it. So it, was, uh, it right, wasn't right. like, you know. Because kids are still kids. Fun. Right, right. I didn't, I didn't try to force them to be something they weren't. I tried yeah. to give them another tool. Mm-hmm. Say, you and know, that's it. Okay. And you and you labeled it perfectly. It's it's all about being able to give tools, right? And like, if I'm telling you to do something and you don't necessarily understand the reasoning behind it, then like you're not really going to be able to do anything with it if I'm not present. I there am the tool. Whereas if I'm giving you you know that information or giving you that schema or that background there about why I'm doing things the way that I'm doing, then all of a sudden you actually have like a pedagogy in, in place and like. Like you can actually, you know, focus on more about like, what does he want me to leave with rather than focusing on like, he's just like, like dragging me right now type of deal. Um, but right. yeah, I completely agree. Junior, I know that you're flipping out over there. You want to talk. It's killing no, you. I, I, I don't think Matt, you didn't necessarily did anything wrong, but you're in a different uh, situation. Like I've done volunteer. Sometimes you're the only person who's actually watching their language. Derek mm-hmm. is in a school atmosphere Maybe he's got them for hours and the school's bought in to a culture change. So if the kids are going there, they have five, you know, five days a week from 8.30 to 3.30, somebody right. installing them. You get them for a couple of hours and you're trying to uh, change them. You know, it's, it's like when you have that one teacher in class who, who won't accept you're good enough, which was my, which was my uh, I guess, problem or the one teacher that changed because I didn't have to really try to be uh, to get good grades, and that was the one teacher that was hardest on me, and that's what brings the best out of it. So mm-hmm. I think I think both of what you guys do are fine. It was just a totally different situation. All right, I don't want to step on toes here, but we do have uh, the format, which is a little bit unforgiving for this kind of a, of a conversation. But I got juniors. I'd like Derek yours and Dave your respective first experiences with racism. For me, at least. It largely because I grew up in segregated Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, and, you know, the big thing there was like you you knew where you could go. You knew where you couldn't go. Um, and, um, you know, the only real crossover you had there was just through the teams you played largely. And so, um, you know, North College Hill is predominantly black and we could be playing any sport, what have you, but we would also cross over with some of the the private schools there too. And so it can be microaggressions here and there about, you know, at least I know my dad or like, you know, your, your skin looks like poop, whatever you want to call it. Um, But in terms of like definitive, like this is clear cut. um, I was stopped and frisked multiple times throughout my time here in New York city. Um, And one of the most jarring times for me, at least was when I was leaving the school, like I was leaving, I was, I was working at collegiate at the time. Um, We're about to go on, or I think we actually were on spring break at that time. And I came in um, just to like do a bit of work in the, in the classroom. And I I didn't really think about what I was wearing, which I should have, but I had on a hoodie and some Adidas track pants. And so, you know, I walked in, just did like all my work. It's probably spent, you know, a couple hours there and then, you know, I'm leaving. And so, uh, you know, the police sitting across the street, like didn't even have to make a motion. All they had to do was just like motion me over essentially. Like they just like, come on over. Like, you know, like I have it's my backpack. like it's a given. 
Yeah. And so you already know if you run, then, you know, who knows what's going to happen next, but we've got an answer for you right now. So it, it, you're already in a space where like, you don't, you can't necessarily, you know, advocate for yourself. You just got to comply. Um, and so, you know, you get a series of questions and like the only thing you, you can do is just kind of stand there. And so I asked the question like, you know, why am I even here? Um, and so like, we'll get to you in a second, but they rifled through my bag. Each this other. is as you're coming out of Columbia. No, no, I was at collegiate. So I was already a teacher. I've got a job. You know, I'm a, I'm a grown man at this point. Collegiate um, high school in New York City? Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. And so this is back when they were on the Upper West Side, not, you yep. know, their new location. But, you know, that was something for me at least where eventually I said like, oh, well, you know, there's a guy that robbed a store and you fit the description. I was like, what was the description? I'm just curious. And like, uh, you can clearly tell that like, they were like, we're not having this conversation with you. Like, obviously, we're here's your stuff. Get away from us. But like, you as a you as a person there do want to kind of ask a little bit more you you want to be able to get an answer but you realize like you know that was your luck right there the fact that you were walking away from this situation do not press any further and so for me at least like you know other people are like oh you should have got their badge numbers you should have did all these other things but like you recognize that like there's nothing that's going to be account like going to be held accountable in that space david my, my first a side game i'd work my way up and um you know, not only do we have a very few as New York Rugby Club African American players, but we had very few in the league um, Jewish players. And I'm not going to name names, but a Jewish player came up to me and it's like, you know, next this weekend, you know, this you know we're playing the AC. You're you're on the east side, and this is the history of this team. They persecute uh, Jews, blacks. Uh, so make sure you bring out your best game. And I will say that my experience getting on the field, um, going into it with that with that kind of history, um, it was uh, confirmed when I got onto the field that was it the New York Irish that we were playing against? No, it's New York, New York, New York Athletic Club. Oh, okay. No. So it's a elitist club, and at the time with a lot of famous members. You said the first, not it's not the only, because. Mm. Because right, because I've been on the field with you. Yeah, I, I could go everything with, within our league. And then they actually, the, the, the jersey I'm wearing now was uh, worn by the captain of the Goshawks, which is a South African select side team. He insulted me to begin the game. And at the end of the game, uh, he actually gave me his jersey, um, which that's the only reason why I keep it. It's like, Obviously, you remember I remember the year. Uh, I want to say it's probably 1994-ish. So it's pre-Invictus. Yes, yes. Before that, the only reason why I take pride in it is because I was. I know that there is one situation where I was able to change someone's um, perspective. perspective. Yeah, and that's and that's sometimes. You know, we can only do it one at a time, but that was um, one time that I know that going in, he had one perspective and leaving, he had another. And I, I would hope that his perspective uh, changed not only on the field, but his experiences beyond. Okay. The follow-up question, what was your most recent experience with racism? You know, with our the president that we have in office, and there are some people that are on the um, 
you know, a team and a club and a family that I, I, I truly um, respect and appreciate that um, there are some members that uh, have different views uh, that have expressed them and and I'll say what you you're not saying is that they they don't even know that they're racists when they're when they're saying no, certain things. I've, they, I've witnessed they that. They don't know what they don't know, and that's unfortunate. Um, right. And it's it's I I have a few friends um, or a few people that I you know call friends in my uh, rugby life in my personal life that it's it's not unusual. Um, but I, I, if I can build on that as as a coach of I own a rugby club. Bruce McLean has done a great job of doing one thing, many things, but one of the things he's done really, really well is he ends every practice making sure there's unity. And as part of that unifying element, he has um, one of the uh, African-American or any of the people of color and the practice that, you know, they're the ones that no one can leave until they do a Iona rugby cheer and that's led by that person. And that brings, I believe, people together um, and it unifies the team. And it also makes people aware of other cultures um, because every time uh, he does that, that is, that person still to this day is junior stated, I stated, and I think Derek stated, we're usually one of the few. It brings the masses around the minority uh, and brings us together. So. I think that is something that is is really special, and um, you know whether it be in the work environment um, or the you know the game environment, whatever it is, when that opportunity comes, it is nice if if we can recognize that there are uh, minorities, whether it be you know LGBTQ, uh, African American, other people of color, having that sensitivity. And unity, I think, is is a um, will help us all um, be better going forward. We are running out of time, so I want to get Sorry. to a couple of more questions, Derek. This this entire summer has been a, a a real stress test for a lot of the rugby teams and a lot of the programs that we've kind of been seeing. And you know, I'm sure Matt, um, as well as the rest of you guys, have just kind of seen you know, the war zone that is our social media feeds and how essentially, how are we going to come back, you know, once rugby's up and running um, to have a space where that guy that was just talking out of the side of his mouth is now going to be sharing the field, you know, with the person he was talking to. Um, and, you know, my, my job is largely to kind of mitigate some of that stuff to be able to kind of talk about it a little bit more. Um, but, I do think that a lot of clubs are going to be on the ropes here um, thinking about, you know, when the inevitable like next unarmed black person getting killed happens and rugby's happening at the same time, how will the club address it? You know, it's not going to be just, you know, let's wait for our resident black guy to say something, but rather, you know, is there going to be top down energy that's going to be showing up there? Nice because a resident white guy to say something before we have to say something. 
Right. And so, you know, in, in bringing credence to it, all of a sudden it has weight because this other white guy spoke up first rather than, you know, can we actually generate just given what we've seen over the summer and what we've been all experiencing on these social media feeds that like our rugby teams, as much as we preach unity, culture, what have you, um, are going through the stress test right now. And, you know, some have, have actually spoken to people off, off, um, off of social media but others have kind of let some of that stuff sit let a lot of like racist statements sit um and so if we're expecting you know to kind of mend that culture when we come back onto the field that's going to be very difficult to do unless there's going to be an honest conversation there so you know i i would i would imagine for me at least like this entire summer even going into november because it's an election year um is just going to be a an overall like prejudice racist experience and we have to normalize it only because i think through that we can really start to piece apart you know what is it about it um that's kind of giving off that feel or what do we need um as a rugby team in order to kind of move past this together which i'm more than certain coaches board members and things like that are talking about but it's gonna it's gonna really come down um to kind of just being held accountable and being able to say like you know we didn't do this well enough in the past but this is us to do a better job right 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 right. i mean we've been saying that as a a white community over and over again with lip service and i think that maybe finally we have specifically with some of these boycotts in in professional sports that some don't deem as um deserved or wise Mm -hmm. i i i disagree at Mm -hmm. opens eyeball junior quick question for you your latest experience with racism on a personal level I was on the phone with a uh, foreign uh, person and they were talking about the neighborhood they wanted for the house and they wanted to make sure it didn't have a, a lot of black people there. <laughs> How do you navigate that though, Lawrence? Um, well, I just remind them that, you know, we have the nine protected classes and you can't really say that. And then you just. You tell him you're black? To, uh, no. That, he can wait for that when he sees me. Hmm. And I'm going to keep the same level of professionalism. I'm not going to get into a speech or anything like that. But, you know, he's going to um, – we're going to get him this house that he wants and move on from that. Two questions. Role models on and off the pitch and – is rugby less racist than real life? I've kind of found a lot of, I've kind of found a lot of energy and kind of, you know, with Roots a lot of time, just kind of, you know, glomming onto. And explain know, Roots of, for people at home. Oh, sure. Uh, so Roots is largely, it's Afrocentric. So you can play if you are not of color, you can play as a white person, you can play as, you know, whoever that you come, that you, you know, come forward as. But Get a um, shitty sevens or player play? Yeah. By all like means, shitty white while we are specifically, <laughs> by of course, Matthew, the, can I play? the yes, and you know the point there is that you know the thing that we are really attracted about is where's your energy when it comes to these types of conversations when it's coming to race when it's coming to to police brutality you know are you going to be vocal you know we do want to encourage more people to be able to speak up about this um just because i do think that activism in sports does go hand in hand quite well um and i think for that reason you know it's really easy to kind of look up um if you will or look across the field to my own like teammates you know when i'm wearing you know the roots jersey a lot of times because I know what they've been through right and I know that 
um, a lot of their experiences, um, sorry, I know a lot of their experiences have to do with, um, you know, what I've experienced too as a rugby player. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's important to kind of, kind of hone in on that and realize that like these are the people that inspire me and that I can rally around as well. So it's um, more of a, a, a collective peer thing for you. Yes, yes. And I, I, I gain a lot of energy watching other people, um, you know, kind of kind of endure that with me. In terms of uh, whether or not racist or, you know, rugby is, is more racist than not than real life. Um, you know, the jury's still out on that. I think, you know, time will tell what, you know, the next two months, three months brings us. Um, as it stands right now, you know, I'm still optimistic. I have hope that, like, you know, we can lead the charge um, in terms of getting more guys to, to kind of share their experiences just like we're doing here but you know more so to have those conversations um about you know bringing equity into the conversation about bringing equality into it as well so one i think rugby is a neutralizer and i think that you know we're all on the field together and we're kind of in battle and for the most part i feel that on the field and as a club we all are united and uh, some of the, the bigotry, racism gets put aside and we are, you know, uh, on the field as a club, um, people you know, look at ourselves, look at each other as whom they are. Um, the other point that I want to make is uh, for you, for the show, for each other, I would love to have us have an additional conversation that not only has the three of us, but the three of us with some people that don't look like us so we can continue to share views, viewpoints, and get other opinions, and, and maybe um, continue to, to, to figure out how we can solve um, and collaborate and, and kind of unite feelings together, something like that. That's a little payola. That's at least a pint. <laughs> Easy enough. All right, that's Give gonna cost COVID. a pint. I'll then we'll get Lewis it. to pay for it. Junior. <laughs> I think rugby is less racist overall. I think there's a general curiosity, but Rugby's heart is usually found in the fact that the large number of people get into a college, so you get more college-educated people, which tends to uh, lead you to a, a people with um, a bit more open mind, a bit more life experience. So role models, a POW and NAM, and his whole thing was uh, never confuse the unwilling belief that we will uh, – get out of a situation with the harsh reality of the situation. Yes, you will over eventually overcome, but you have to recognize how hard it will be. And um, so is that, that's is how that, I do Is that kind of a message of hope? Yeah, I think we've, we've come a long way. We've got a longer way. We've got more of a way to go. But, I mean, I believe we've made incredible progress in just having this discussion and learning to be a little bit uncomfortable and selling into that uncomfortableness is, is progress. Hopefully this will help stir a conversation or help people understand things. If nothing else, Derek, you're early on when you were explaining how people don't know how to ask or say or what, how to, you know, just get over it. Yeah. Um, I've got an entire website that is, that is dedicated to getting the conversation started. What's the so. website? 
Uh, it's called the work.education. Um, and it's largely just for people that are thinking to themselves, how do I get involved? How do I get started? And, you know, and, and it's a great tool just to kind of get the ball rolling for those that are feeling kind of stuck. I just wish I could wave a wand and make uh, make your lives easier, fellas, and I, and I can't. And, but it's um, at least I got this forum. At least we can get some of it out. And I think it was positive. All I will say is the key for progress is just um, – well, I phrase it earlier. Um, awkward questions, hard answers, uncomfortable situations. Once we get ourselves around that and accept that, you know, this was uncomfortable a bit. It was a bit awkward, Matt, but you know, you learned you learned a bit from it, and we're all for, all better for it. So, and that's the only way we're gonna get better. I grew up in the world of advertising, and they say, say it, say it again, and say it again. So work.education.org. And Matthew, please promote um, this uh, uh, segment as much as possible. And I, I will say thank you on behalf of the three of us for doing what you did and putting this together, because mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. for me, from the heart, awesome experience. And I know that you know you did this from your heart. So we appreciate you. Very much so. Thank you. Well, again, it's a feeling Thank you very much, that spurs it, but I appreciate your kind words, fellas. And uh, on that note, on behalf of Mr. Derek Lipscomb, Mr. David Flemister, and Mr. Lawrence Blaber Jr., a.k.a. Junoir and Jr., I'm Matt McCarthy for Rugby Wrap-Up in Midtown Manhattan. Stay safe, everybody.